Today's passage, we're going to be reading out of James, James chapter 2, verses 14 through 19. Um, Pastor Bruce will be speaking again out of the book of James. What is real faith? If you require a pew Bible, there should be one in front of you. You can find it on page 1200. So, but follow along with me as I read James chapter 2, verses 14 through 19. What good is it, my brothers, if someone says he has faith but does not have works? Can that faith save him? If a brother or sister is poorly clothed and lacking in daily food, and one of you says to them, Go in peace and be warmed and filled, without giving them the things needed for the body, what good is that? So also faith by itself, if it does not have works, is dead. But someone will say, You have faith, and I have works. Show me your faith apart from your works, and I will show you my faith by my works. You believe that God is one, you do well. Even demons believe and shudder. Let's pray. Lord God, you are a grand and glorious God, giving us the opportunity to follow you in faith and have relationship with you, God. I pray that you would open our hearts and ears today as Pastor Bruce comes to preach this message about faith and what it really means. Thank you for your son once again, God, in your name, amen. Well, for all of you who are Christmas enthusiasts, that is, you cannot wait for Christmas to come. Once Christmas is over, you will be happy to know that there are only 18 weeks until Christmas. Others of you here this morning... You don't get excited about Christmas until, well, Christmas Eve. Most of you are probably like myself. Once December arrives, you enjoy Christmas season. You enjoy watching the favorite Christmas movies that you have at the top of your list. In fact, one of our family's favorite Christmas movies while our boys were growing up is probably one of your favorite Christmas movies, and that is Elf. It's the story of Buddy the Elf who leaves the North Pole to find his real dad in the real world of New York City. And there's this great scene in the movie where Buddy sees Santa in a department store. And he thinks it's the real Santa. And so he's celebrating. He's he's jumping up and down in excitement about seeing Santa Claus. But when he gets closer he starts to recognize this is not the real Santa. But Buddy the Elf can't quite make sense of it. And so he goes up to Santa and starts looking intently at his face. And Santa's getting a little uncomfortable about it. And then Buddy finally says to Santa, you're not Santa. I know him. You're a fake. You stink. In fact, you smell like beef and cheese. You don't smell like Santa. You sit on a throne of lies. Now, what's Buddy doing in that scene? Well, he's showing us, he's telling us that he knows a fake Santa from the real Santa. And in the same way, that is what James is doing here in chapter 2 when it comes to real faith. James is showing us here in a manner of speaking, whether or not we have a beef and cheese faith or whether we have a real faith. 
And that brings us to where we are in our series through the book of James. Remember, as we said from the very beginning, the book of James is really all about living out real faith in real life. And so James needs to answer this question that he really began answering back in chapter 1 at the end there, in verses 26 and 27, what then is real faith? Now, in verse 26 and 27, he calls it pure religion, pure and undefiled religion. And we, we talked about that. In essence, that is real faith. And so now James, through the course of chapter 2, is answering the question for us. He's describing for us. He's showing us what real faith is, what it looks like. And what he shows us now in this section of chapter 2, verses 14 through 19. In fact, you're welcome to fill in notes if you have a handout there or look on the screen. He's showing us that real faith is demonstrated not by what we say we believe, but rather how we live out what we say we believe. In other words, Christianity is not simply a gospel of words. It is a gospel of works. In other words, real faith in Jesus is demonstrated not by what we say we believe, but how we live out what we say we believe. Jesus himself said in his Sermon on the Mount in Matthew 5, verse 16, let your light shine before others so that they may see your good works and give glory to your Father in heaven. And now James, remember, we already have learned that he is the half-brother of Jesus. He borrows much from Jesus' Sermon on the Mount. And James picks up on this theme of real faith, and he shows us, he describes for us, he defines for us real faith as faith that works here in chapter 2. And as we already alluded to, James is really continuing what he said at the end of chapter 1, where real faith shows itself in action. And he gave us three examples of that action of real faith there in 26 and 27 where he said, listen, real faith, if it's pure and undefiled, it's going to control the tongue. It's going to care for the helpless and it's going to avoid worldliness. And so James is showing that if you have real faith, it's going to be evident in your works, how you live. Now, some may think that, Wow, is James contradicting Paul? And we'll, we'll dive into that discussion a little more next Sunday. But let me just quote from you, or for you, what Paul says here in Ephesians chapter 2, verses 8 through 9, where Paul writes, For by grace you have been saved through faith. And this is not of your own doing. It is the gift of God, not a result of work, so that no one may boast. And we say a hearty amen to that. We affirm that truth here at LifeBridge. But Paul also goes on and says in verse 10, For we are His workmanship, created in Jesus Christ for what? Good works, which God prepared beforehand, that we should walk in them. In other words, Paul's saying the same thing James is saying. This is about real faith and living it out in real life. Walk in these works here. So James is not disputing that we are saved by faith alone and Christ alone. Rather, James is dealing with this all-important question, what does real faith look like? What is it? And James, in essence, here in chapter 2 says, listen, talk is cheap when it comes to real faith. In fact, this word faith is used 11 different times here in chapter 2, 
And eight of those times it's used in connection with someone who says they have real faith, with someone who claims to have real faith, but they have no works to back it up. In other words, this person says he has it, he, he claims to have faith, but in reality he doesn't. And James says, your talk is cheap. The whole point James is making is that real faith is demonstrated by our, our works, our actions, and not by our words. Why? Because talk is cheap. And so James basically says, listen, don't just tell me you have real faith. Show me you have real faith. And so let's look what this means for us under those two points. And and as we do, here's what we're going to see. We're going to see that real faith is so much more than what you say, and it's also so much more than what you actually say you believe. What is real faith? James says, don't just tell me you have real faith, point number one. Look what James writes in verse 14 again. Look what he says, and he poses it as a question. He says, what good is it, my brothers, if someone says he has faith but does not have works? Can that faith save him? What kind of faith? That faith? Remember, he's talking about a faith that does not have works. He's talking about that faith. If someone says he has it but doesn't have any works, can that kind of faith save him? And note that James' pastoral tone here when he says, my brothers, we've already seen, he uses this term quite frequently. It's a gender-neutral term to refer to both men and women, brothers and sisters in Christ. And so James is coming pastorally. He comes with loving concern for these churches that he's writing to, these Jewish believers who are scattered due to persecution. And he's writing to them, and he wants them to evaluate themselves, to evaluate their faith. So he's not beating them over the head. He's not condemning them, but he is challenging them to evaluate their faith. In other words, James is pleading with them, don't just tell me you have real faith. Show me. This is James' concern. And so he begins with two serious questions that he brings before us this morning. And the question is this. Look at it again. It's in your notes. It's taken right out of the scripture of what James says in verse 14. What good is it, my brothers, if someone says he has faith but does not have works? Can that faith save him? Now, the key phrase here in verse 14 is this phrase, if someone says. This person says, in other words, he has faith. But James comes back and says to him, talk is cheap. Talk is cheap. And so by putting the matter this way, James is imagining a hypothetical person here. In fact, through verses 14 through the end of the chapter, James is basically having a conversation, and he's recording it for us in the scriptures here, and he's, he's having this hypothetical conversation with an antagonist to this very issue. And he imagined this hypothetical person claiming that he has faith in Jesus Christ, but whose life has no works of any kind to back up what they are saying. So here is a person who boasts of something that apparently he does not possess. He says, listen, I have faith in Jesus, but there's nothing there. There's nothing remotely Christ-like. There's nothing in his life that demonstrates that he does indeed have real faith. 
And James' concern here is that there were some in the churches that he's writing to who said they had real faith, but they lived, or the way they lived suggested otherwise. You see, it is so easy to say we have faith. It doesn't take much to say that you're a Christian, that you believe in God, you believe in Jesus Christ. In fact, national surveys continue to reflect high numbers of people who do this very thing. It's as easy as saying a few words, as checking a box on a form, making a comment on Facebook, or answering a question in a survey. Faith is easily claimed, but James says again, talk is so cheap. Don't just tell me you have real faith. Show me. Now, the stakes cannot be any higher here. When James asks the question, can that kind of faith save him? And notice the serious answer to this question. It's a rhetorical question, and so the implied answer to the question is no. This kind of faith doesn't save anybody. So what we see here immediately in verse 14 with this question implied answer is that there is a kind of faith that saves, and there's also a kind of faith that does not save. In other words, there's real faith, and then there is false faith. However easy it might be to say that you have faith, James says, listen, it accomplishes absolutely nothing good at all if mere profession of it is all there is. In fact, James says it's useless. In fact, this say-so kind of faith is worse than useless. It's a kind of faith that James says cannot even save. You say, save from what? Well, Paul actually answered that question Later on in Romans chapter 5, verse 9, when Paul says, since we have now been justified by his blood, that is Jesus Christ's blood, how much more shall we be saved from God's wrath or God's judgment through him? So James here in verse 14, listen, he is asking a very serious question. And he's giving us a very serious answer that should cause all of us here this morning to stop and pause and evaluate our lives. Evaluate whether or not we have a beef and cheese faith or we have real faith. Because it is possible to actually say that you have faith in Jesus when in fact you do not. It is possible to believe that you have a right relationship with a holy God, that you will not face his judgment and yet remain under the judgment of God. In other words, it is possible to possess counterfeit faith or false faith that does not save from God's coming judgment. And so the immediate question we all ought to be asking ourselves right now is, well, how can I tell then if I possess real faith or not? How can we know if we are really true believers in Jesus Christ? And so for anyone here this morning who professes to be a Christian, listen, this is the most important question that you can ask, and it is certainly the most crucial question that you need to answer accurately. And James answers this question for us by showing us what is lacking in false faith. And he does this by giving us two different examples. 
And so what James is doing with these examples, he's saying, listen, I've already talked about how the Word of God is a mirror. We are to look in the Word of God as a mirror. Now I'm holding up these examples to you. So look at these examples and see if you see yourself in these examples or not. In fact, James loves giving illustrations. He loves using illustrations. And so he pulls out another one in this example of false faith here in verses 15 through 16. Look at the shocking example he gives. And again, I'm using Scripture here as our subpoints because James is so practical with what he says here. Notice it. He says, if a brother or sister is poorly clothed and lacking in daily food, and one of you, again, it's, it's a say-so faith, if one of you says to them, go in peace, be warmed and filled, without giving them the things needed for the body, what good is that? So this is the second time James is now asking that question, what good is this kind of faith? James' example, again, it's hypothetical, and yet it is entirely conceivable, for we know already that there were destitute believers among the churches that he was writing to. He's already given us an example of that. He's already talked about that before here earlier in chapter 2. In fact, this double need that he identifies of food and clothing is James' way of showing us a brother or sister in Christ who is facing extreme destitution. And the implication seems to be that this poor brother or sister in Christ now comes into the gathered assembly of the church and asks for help. And sadly, too, the response in this example, in this scenario, is also conceivable when someone in the church simply says to him, go in peace, be warm and filled. A good way to translate that would be, may God richly bless you because I certainly won't. That is the force of what is being said to these poor, destitute believers. Now, this response, obviously, is is shocking. In fact, it is absolute indifference on the part of these churches. This is shameless apathy and unconcern for a, a needy brother or sister in Christ who was poorly clothed and unable to find food for that day. And so, merely wishing someone a God bless you in the face of their need is an indication, James says, that, that our spoken sentiments they're, listen, they're not sincere. And beyond that, James is saying, that's probably a good indication that your faith is not real as well. Listen, if we have the means to help meet the practical needs of other believers in our gathered assembly and choose not to, no amount of, quote, God bless you will make up for that. And so James asked this rhetorical question, what good is that kind of faith? What good is it if you say to somebody, be warmed and filled, and you do absolutely nothing? And his expected answer is, it's no good at all. That kind of faith is useless. Why? Because words without corresponding deeds are just empty sounds. They are meaningless. They mean nothing. Now, please understand, James is not telling us here. He's not saying that, that we as Christ followers, we as believers in Christ, must do everything. But he is admonishing that we must do something when we see other believers within our church community that is in need. 
This is why Paul later on writes in Galatians chapter 6, verse 10, So then, as we have opportunity, let us do good to everyone, and especially to those who are of the household of faith. So no wonder James says, don't talk to me about mercy. Show mercy. Don't just tell me you have real faith. Show me you have real faith. At the same time, we need to remember, and please understand this, that acts of mercy are not a means to salvation. We are not saved by what we do. James is not teaching that we are saved by our actions. We know by the rest of Scripture and even by James himself that we are saved by the abundant grace of God in Jesus Christ. Acts of mercy are not a means to salvation. We don't show mercy in order to be saved. Rather than being a means to salvation, acts of mercy, James is saying, is simply the evidence of our salvation. It's the evidence that we do indeed have real faith in Jesus Christ. And James has already talked about these acts of mercy earlier in chapter 2. And he connected it to the royal law of love. And the way you obey the royal law of love is how? By showing acts of mercy. And we already saw that the royal law of love is summed up in what? Love God with all your heart, soul, and mind. That is the first and greatest commandment. And if you have real faith, that is what your life will be about. And then the second is to love others. To show mercy. So understand, please understand, salvation is not a a faith plus works, nor is it a faith without any works. But it is a faith that works. And this is James' sobering conclusion here in verse 17. Look at it with me. He says, so also faith by itself, if it does not have works, what is it? What does he say it is? It's dead. It's dead. It's a dead faith. To say it another way, real faith will show itself in good works. And if it doesn't, then James says that that faith, it is dead. Why? Because real faith that has no impact on our lives, no impact on our conduct, no impact on our behavior, James is saying that's not really real faith. Therefore, faith by itself without any works is dead. Now, what does James mean when he says for faith to be dead? It's exactly what you think it means. It isn't alive. It's lifeless, which means it's a faith that doesn't save. You see, dead faith, what it wants to do is replace works, the evidence of our faith, with simply words a I-say-so kind of faith. But James comes back in his argument here in chapter 2 and basically says to these churches and now to us through this book, and says, listen, don't just tell me you have real faith. Show me. Warren Wiersbe put it this way, people with dead faith substitute words for deeds. They know the correct vocabulary They can even quote a verse or two. They come to the conclusion that they can live any way they like so long as they know the words. But they are wrong. William Barclay writes, 
This is the one thing that evidently James cannot stand. A profession of faith without the practice of faith. Why? Because for James, he's saying it's a dead faith. It's dead and therefore it is useless. And so he asks this rhetorical question twice. What good is that kind of faith? James says, listen, it's no good at all. Because it's a faith that cannot save you from the wrath of God that is coming. So the first point that James makes is, don't just tell me that you have faith. And that brings us to James' second point here. Number two, show me that you have real faith. James' next case study or example makes this point even more forcefully when he introduces us to an anonymous objector who suddenly speaks out and notice his objection here in verse 18. Look at it. It's in your notes, in your Bibles. But someone will say, you have faith and I have works. And James comes back and says to them, show me your faith apart from your works, which James knows that's impossible. And James says, I will show you my faith by my works, which is the only way that you can show somebody your faith. And so James, what he's doing here in verse 18, he now imagines someone who says there's absolutely no connection with faith and works. They're separating it. And he's saying there's no connection to it. This objector basically says, isn't this great? I have faith, you have works. Isn't it wonderful we're in the same family so that we can balance each other out. You've got your faith and I've got my works. But this separation doesn't wash with James. And basically, James calls him a spiritual fool later on in verse 20. James says, and he confronts him, show me. In fact, I love this about James since we live here in what state? We live in Missouri. The show me state, right? So James would have made a good Missourian here. And James' response is, you say you have faith, show me. You show me your faith apart from your works, which is impossible, and I will show you my faith by my works, which is the only way that it's possible. In other words, James says, you show me your faith without doing anything, and I'll prove to you my faith without saying anything. You see, James knows that it is impossible to prove one's faith without doing something. Why? Because real faith is seen in our works. There's no other way to see it. In some ways, James is likening faith to the wind. Can you see the wind? Nobody sees the wind. Yet we know when it's blowing because we feel the impact of the wind we see the evidence of the wind blowing. That's how we know the wind is there. It's the same way with faith. You cannot see faith in and of itself except through its works. That is the evidence of it. That's what James is getting at here. In fact, this word that James uses for show here in verse 18, it means to bring to light. It means to exhibit, to display. And James is telling us, in other words, to to show our faith, to display and exhibit our faith. How? 
by our good deeds, by our works. And again, do not misunderstand what James is saying. He is not saying works do not create faith. Instead, he's saying works demonstrate that our faith is real. This is James' point. You cannot separate faith and works. Works are not optional for those who say they have real faith. They are inevitable. Works show that you have real faith. Works prove the existence of spiritual life. It proves the existence of real faith in Jesus Christ. In fact, James reiterates this point. We'll see it more in depth next Sunday in verse 20 when he says, Do you want to be shown, you foolish person, that faith apart from works is useless? And it's useless because it's a faith that cannot save. Now, James uses the, quote, faith of the demons to drive this point home even more clearly and more sharply. You see, not only is real faith, it's more than what you just say, but James is going to show us here through another example that real faith is also more than what you believe. Look at the example James gives in verse 19. He says, you believe that God is one, you do well. Even the demons believe and shudder. Now the gloves have come off. Because there is no area of Christian belief more significant than this, that God is one. In fact, the cornerstone of a biblical understanding of God goes all the way back to the Old Testament, and it is found in Deuteronomy chapter 6, verse 4, where it says, Hear, O Israel, the Lord our God, the Lord is one. In fact, so significant was this belief that faithful Jews in the Old Testament would recite this verse. They would recite it every day, twice a day. Hear, O Israel, the Lord our God, the Lord is one. Why? Because this was the most basic, most orthodox, most essential doctrine in the entire Jewish nation. And James basically comes to these people who are Jewish believers who claim that for themselves and says to them, listen, you now believe, hanging above them, their greatest, most significant doctrine And he says, you now believe that God is one? Man, that's great. Bravo for you. Even the demons believe that and shudder. So James says, listen, you have impeccable theology. Congratulations. Your faith is on par. It is on the same level as the demons. As Sam Albury writes in his commentary on Judges, the demons have sound doctrine. Hell is full of good theology. And what he's saying there is that intellectual belief of Christian truth is not enough to save anyone. Why? Because real faith, the kind of faith that saves, is more than what you believe. And so to anyone who is tempted here to simply reduce faith to just saying the, quote, right things, James points to this very uncomfortable yet undeniable truth, even the demons believe that. Yet the demons are tormented. 
the demons are terrified by their beliefs. They shudder by what they actually know intellectually of God. But demons are not saved by what they know. Instead, the truth torments them, the truth terrifies them, for they do not add love of God to their knowledge of God. The demons, in other words, do not obey, do not fulfill the royal law of love, which is the evidence that we have real faith. That is James' point here. It's a rather sobering point. It's meant to be sobering. It is meant to grab our attention. It is meant to cause us to evaluate our lives in the mirror of God's word. So what do we learn from this? What what can we take away from the, the, quote, faith or the belief of demons here? Well, let me give you three characteristics of demons' faith and see perhaps if this does not characterize your belief, your faith which would be, in a sense, a faith that does not save. First of all, demon's faith is recognition without relationship. What's interesting here about the Jewish prayer, it's actually called the Shema in Deuteronomy chapter 6, 4, is that it continues in the very next verse, in verse 5 of Deuteronomy chapter 6. Listen to what it says in verse 5. You'll be familiar with it. It says, you shall love the Lord your God with all your heart and with all your soul and with all your might. And what James is saying here is that there is a huge difference between simply recognizing God's existence and actually loving God with your heart. You see, like the demons, you can can recognize God. You can mentally assent that there is a God without having a relationship with God. You can say that God exists without ever giving your heart to him, without ever loving him, just like the demons here. The second characteristic we see is that the demon's faith is acknowledgement without acceptance. Let's say you were a journalist and you were given the task to interview a demon about their faith. In fact, let's say that you could interview all the demons that have ever been in existence. Do you realize you would not find one single atheist among those demons? All the demons believe in God And all the demons rightly believe he is one God. In fact, the demons believe a lot of things that we say we believe. For example, they believe in the existence of God. They believe in the deity of Christ. They believe in the reality of heaven and hell. They know Christ is the eternal judge and that he alone is able to save. One pastor and author describes the faith of demons this way. Listen to what I quote. The demons do not sit around and debate who created the universe. They were there. The demons don't debate the crucifixion and death of Christ on the cross. They howled in delight on that hill. They don't argue over a literal resurrection of Christ. They fled in utter dismay and defeat from that scene. 
A demon never wonders if the Bible is telling the truth. In fact, they are evidently aware of the judgment described in the last book of the Bible in Revelation chapter 20. And so does it not shock you to learn that demons acknowledge God, they acknowledge His Son, Jesus Christ, but it is an acknowledgement without a personal acceptance of it. And so how many people even today acknowledge the basic tenets, the basic doctrines or beliefs of Christianity without ever accepting the person of Jesus Christ as their Savior and King. Oh, they want a good life. They'll tell you that. Who doesn't want a good life in this world? They want a peaceful death. Most people do. They even want eternal bliss. But in reality, they do not want the bridegroom, nor do they want to have anything to do with the bride, which is the church. As David Platt writes, I fear that countless men and women have bought into the soul-damning idea that mere intellectual assent to the truth of God in Christ is enough to save. And the reality is that these people are no better off than the demons themselves. So demons' faith is a recognition without having a relationship with God through faith in Jesus Christ. It is acknowledgement without accepting Jesus Christ as their Savior and King. And then number three, demons' faith is reverence or fear without repentance. James says, it's interesting, that the demons believe and they do what? What do they do? They shudder. The demons believe and shudder. There's emotion here to the demons of what they believe. Listen, the demons are impacted by the truth of God. They tremble at this truth. But it is a reverence, it is a fear without any repentance. And get this, the tense of this verb here indicates that they are constantly shuddering in fear at the truth of God in their own future makes them tremble with continual fear. And so, yes, the demons are afraid of God, but get this, they will not surrender to him. People who have this kind of faith, the the faith like the demons have, are likewise perhaps even in awe of God. They may even shudder in fear but they still refuse to submit to him. They they will choose their own sin, their own way of living, and refuse to repent. They might even be afraid of one day standing before God, but they still will not surrender to God in this lifetime. They believe in God like, like most of us here believe in Julius Caesar. Most of you, like me, we believe in the existence of that emperor who at once ruled the Western world. But like these Jewish believers in James' day, we have never bowed down to the memory of Julius Caesar nor the might of Julius Caesar, and never have we said, him, Caesar, is Lord. And those with faith like demons will not do this with Christ either. They refuse to bend their knee. They refuse to bend their heart and their will and say, Christ is my Lord and King. And so what James is showing us here through these examples is that real faith, it is more than what we say, 
And real faith is more than what we believe. And so James comes to us very pastorally with loving concern for your eternal destiny. And he says, listen, please don't just tell me that you have real faith. Show me. Show me by how you live. Why? Because real faith is demonstrated not by what we say we believe, but how we live out what we say we believe. You see, saying you have faith without any works to back it up is no more than just hot air. And James says, such faith cannot save, for such faith is dead. And again, James' concern here is that we not look at those around us, but that we look at our own selves. We can be so quick to affirm our faith, to declare it in songs that we sing here at church, to even declare it in our prayers we hear or pray ourselves or even our conversations with one another. We can go to grow group and affirm it that way, and, and yet we never stop to examine whether our profession of faith is real or is it a beef and cheese kind of faith. And James says, and he says with love, don't just tell me you have real faith. Show me. And so here is the takeaway. Here is the one takeaway probably the most important takeaway, and that is to make sure you have real faith in Jesus Christ for only real faith saves. Listen to me, please, as we close. Real faith, it is a faith that involves the heart and that it impacts the life. It involves our heart and then it impacts our lives. And so, yes, the place to start is what Paul writes in Romans chapter 10, verses 9 and 10, where Paul says, if you confess with your mouth that Jesus is Lord and believe in your heart that God raised him from the dead, you will be what? Saved. For with the heart one believes and is justified, that is declared righteous in your position before God, and with the mouth one confesses and is saved. In fact, you can go to the example then in the book of Acts with the Philippian jailer. You remember that scene? Paul and Silas are in jail. An earthquake happens, and the gates, the doors come open, and the jailer thinks they're going to run. They don't, and the jailer is amazed by this. He cries out in Acts 16, verse 30, to Paul and Silas, men, what must I do to be saved? And he cries that out based on the actions of Paul and Silas. Not just what they said. What must I do to be saved? And Paul answered to him in verse 31, believe in the Lord Jesus and you will be saved. But that preposition is all important when Paul says believe in because it means to, to move toward. It means to rest upon. It does not mean to believe that Jesus simply exists like the demons do. It means to move toward Jesus in saving faith and to rest upon Him alone for your salvation. And Paul says you will be saved. The question is, have you done this? 
Have you truly believed in Jesus Christ, resting upon him alone, his work on the cross in his resurrection for your salvation? With saving faith that God grants you, have you put your faith and trust in him? And then from that moment on, by the power of the Holy Spirit, you seek to now demonstrate that faith that you claim you have and you believe in Jesus Christ. Not perfectly. We're not going to do it perfectly, right? Nobody does. But there is a desire to do so, and even when there is not a desire, because we know even in our sin, we can become so calloused and seared. But in time, we are convicted by the Holy Spirit. We are convicted by our sin that we repent of it. We cannot go on living like that. Why? Because we know real faith. It believes and then it acts. Does that describe you? Do you have real faith? The kind of faith that saves you from the coming judgment and wrath of God. Or do you have a beef and cheese kind of faith? James is coming to us and he is begging you. Look in the mirror of God's word and examine your heart. Would you bow your heads with me and even do that now? Would you cry out to God and ask him to show you the reality of your faith? the kind of faith that you have? Ask him, plead with him in prayer. God, what is my faith? I think I said some type of prayer when I was younger. I don't really remember anything. My life certainly hasn't really changed because of it. God, is that me? Is this, do I not have it? Or perhaps you're one that's, Lord is showing you, yes, you have real faith. But maybe your life hasn't yet or it did at one time, but you've been wayward. But you know your conscience is being pricked by the Holy Spirit. Would you repent and return to the joy of your salvation? Heavenly Father, thank you for granting us faith in Jesus Christ so that we can be saved from the penalty of our sins. And Lord, we know you've even given us the power of the Spirit to do battle with the power of sin, even in this lifetime. And so Lord, grant us grace to live in such a way that demonstrates our faith in Christ is real. And if we're struggling with whether or not we have real faith in God, help us to examine our hearts and give us assurance to those who do have real faith, but Lord, convict those who do not that they may turn to you in saving faith. It's in Jesus' name we pray. Amen.